It's Tuesday, November 13th, and this is The Daily Dive. Opening statements in the trial of notorious Sinaloa cartel kingpin Joaquin El Chapo Guzman start today. A 17-count indictment accuses him of building a multi-billion dollar international narcotics empire through murder and violence. Nicole Hong, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us to preview the logistical nightmare in transporting El Chapo to court, closing down the Brooklyn Bridge, armored car transport flanked by police, and snipers on rooftops. Next, some updates on the fires burning throughout California. As much as this is a story of family evacuations, firefighters, and loss, this is also a big weather story. Andrew Friedman, science editor at Axios, joins us to talk about climate change, population growth, and other trends making fire season run year-round in California. Finally, comic book legend Stan Lee has passed away, the genius that created superheroes like Spider-Man, X-Men, Iron Man, Captain America, and many more, captured the hearts and minds of people all over the world who saw themselves in the flawed but heroic characters he created. Tawala Sharp, co-host of the Nerdorama podcast, joins us to remember Stan Lee and talk about how his work has impacted comics and popular culture. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I see him as one man who, with the choices he was given, with the imagination and perhaps the entrepreneurial drive that he had attached it to something that is experienced in its harvesting and selling in a very different way than it is experienced in its usage. Joining us now is Nicole Hong, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. We're in for quite the excitement for the next few months, it seems like. New York City will be host to the trial of Joaquin El Chapo Guzman, one of the most infamous criminals in modern history. He was the head of the Sinaloa cartel. He escaped from prison multiple times. He has an amazing story, and it's going to be a logistical nightmare to get him to and from court for the next few months. Tell us a little about El Chapo and what we're in for. The indictment against him covers almost 30 years of alleged criminal activity from trafficking massive amounts of cocaine to the U.S. to his use of violence and firearms to money laundering. There's also some murder conspiracy alleged in the indictment. So I expect the government will tell a very full narrative of his life at trial and sort of how he got started in the drug trade all the way until sort of his capture in 2016 by Mexican authorities. He's going to be on trial. We're trying to prosecute him from crimes that he's been doing really horrific type of things as well. But it is also going to be a moment to tell his whole life story. He is a legend in Mexico. People write songs about him, and he has kind of this Robin Hood persona even out there. We sort of saw that on display during jury selection, where one of the jurors was dismissed because he tried to get his autograph and (laughs) basically suggested that he was a fan of him. So you're right. This is a very big challenge for both the defense and the government, because this is someone that has such a lore about him. I mean, he's been in infamous for so long. Most of the jurors said that they recognized his name from TV shows or from the news. So it's really an unusual trial in that sense. There was one woman who was crying, pleading to the judge that she was scared of her identity being revealed, but she's still on the jury. Yeah, the judge basically said he didn't want to set a precedent 
of jurors being let off jury duty just by expressing a concern like that. So we'll see what happens. I guess they haven't set the jurors you know, 100% in stone yet, but I think he wanted to send a message of, you know, we haven't detected any sort of actual threats yet, although we know this man's history, so we're taking a lot of precautions, like keeping the jurors' identities anonymous, and every day they're going to be transported to and from the courthouse by federal marshals. But as far as we're aware, there haven't been any concrete threats cited against them so far. Talk about the logistical hurdles that are going to be going on with transporting him to the courthouse and then to where he's going to be staying for the duration of the of the trial. One of the most difficult things is getting him physically to the courthouse because since his extradition last year, he has been living in this facility in downtown Manhattan that we locally call MCC. It's widely known as the most secure pretrial facility in America, but his trial is 2 miles away in Brooklyn. Even for pretrial hearings, it's been a logistical nightmare for law enforcement officials to get him to and from Brooklyn for his hearings they have shut down the entire Brooklyn Bridge when he has had to go across. And obviously that's caused traffic and all sorts of gridlock for the city when that's happened. But what we were told for this trial, the plan is at least that they're going to transport him there on Mondays, drive him back on Fridays. And in between, he may live at some undisclosed location in Brooklyn. I'll also tell you that in the 90s, there was a similar trial for a suspected assassin for the Medellin cartel. For his trial, he lived in the basement of the courthouse under 24-7 armed guard surveillance. So that may be one option they're looking at. He's going to be traveling in an armored vehicle flanked by police escorts. There might be helicopters. I mean, if they move him to somewhere off-site, wouldn't it be reasonable to think that with so much scrutiny that we'd kind of know where he's going to be going? Exactly. Yeah. My expectation would be that he's probably going to just stay somewhere in the courthouse in some facility, I assume they built for him, but they're not sharing those details with us and for obvious got, reasons. And you got to be careful. Obviously, we know the whole story of how he escaped the last time. He had people dig a tunnel from the shower a mile out, a couple miles out and with like a little motorcycle rigged to a track. And that's how he escaped the last time. So he is sneaky. You got to be careful with him. They've put in so many precautions to prevent an escape. I mean, the judge won't even let him hug his wife right. on the first day of trial because he said, in the past, you've used your family members and your lawyers as ways to escape and to communicate with the rest of the cartel. So we really have to kind of cut off any contact between you and your family, even if it's just a brief hug at trial. Well, it's going to be really interesting to see how this whole thing proceeds and uh, we're going to try to follow it as closely as we can. I mean, it's going to be one of the biggest trials going on in New York City since the terror trials from uh, almost two decades ago. Yeah, I mean, just the combination of the security of making sure he doesn't escape, but also protecting his life, because our understanding is that officials are really closely monitoring any assassination attempts against him, and just the logistics of protecting the jurors, and especially protecting the cooperating witnesses. There are so many witnesses who will be testifying at this trial. My assumption is a lot of them might have families who live outside the U.S. Just this whole thing is going to be a huge spectacle and a huge logistical challenge for the government. Nicole Hong, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.
really a new age of firefighting now. We have people depending on us. We have a job to do, and we're not going to stop until these fires are put out. We definitely have had a large drought. Uh, we did have a spike in precipitation uh, last year. Now we're back kind of in a drought right now, so it's just a recipe for destruction. Joining us now is Andrew Friedman, science editor for Axios. He's also an extreme weather expert. We always like to talk to you when big weather events are happening. California is on fire right now in the north and in the south. There's three major fires, the Woolsey Fire burning over 90,000 acres. They say about 20% containment. There is the Camp Fire, which is the big one up in the north. They say it's about 25% containment, but that's also one of the most damaging ones. There's 29 deaths so far. Over 200 people are missing, and the picture is just really grim. The town of Paradise almost completely lost up there. And as much as this is raging wildfires and the story of people evacuating and the story of firefighters battling battling this at all costs. This is also a big time weather event. It has a lot to do with winds and climate change and the way everything is changing. Right now, California is in a year-round fire season. What do we know about this? My thoughts are with the firefighters and with everybody affected there. There's pretty much not a person in California who isn't, be it air quality issues or otherwise. Right. The long-term trends are really clear and have been growing more stark recently, which is that basically you have several trends acting in one direction to heighten wildfire risk in California. You have climate change, which makes for hotter, drier summers. You have climate change, which one researcher called it the shoulders of the dry season. You could also think of it as the tails of the dry season. So fall gets a little bit longer and a little bit warmer. Spring starts a little bit earlier and is a little bit warmer. And if you make those seasons in particular a little bit drier, a little bit warmer, that's when, particularly in the fall, you get into Santa Ana wind season. So you don't want to dry that season out and you do not want to prolong it. And that's what's happening. So these Santa Ana wind events are primarily natural in origin in terms of a weather event, but they are taking place in a broader context of us building a lot more in what's known as the wildland urban interface, which is where towns come up against areas that do burn regularly. Right. People want to build in those areas because they want to be around nature. There is an increase of population all the time, so you, you have to keep expanding. Building into the wilderness and things like that, people love it. People want to live near there. And then, yeah, these things happen and, and it be, could become a, a very dangerous situation. What's been especially scary that we hadn't seen before, that's really a new phenomenon in California, especially new and repetitive, is these uncontrollable fires that very quickly become urban fires. Yeah. So the Paradise Fire was so frightening to watch in terms of watching that Twitter hashtag of the camp fire on Thursday, uh, late Thursday Eastern time was horrific. You got a sense of what people were going through there and how quickly they had to get out. You know that the death toll is very likely increasing there. Uh, It's already Mm -hmm. tied for the deadliest wildfire in state history. It's already the most damaging in state history. And that happens when you combine rapid spreading wind-driven fires with 
a community that's located there. There are real legitimate questions, both for economic reasons and for wildfire risk reasons. And we don't know if that community will build back or build back in a different way. Just like on the East Coast, they're questioning whether towns in Florida that were hit by uh, the last Hurricane Michael are going to build back. There's all sorts of questions that we really need to be asking as we recognize that the wildfire risk is elevated so much that this is the new normal. It's We're not going back to a six-month fire season right. in California, and we're not going back to less people living in the state. So how do you accommodate more people with more fire? And part of that is to be smart about where you're building and be better about practicing drills of getting people out of harm's way very quickly. There's a lot of questions about why cell phone alerts didn't go out. Different communities are prepared in different ways. Just speaking to the extreme weather of these things, you mentioned in your article, too, about the car fire that happened over the summer. These fire tornadoes form and, and you know, just how extreme these things get is so crazy that people can't handle it sometimes. It's not just people. Like, it's not uh, just that ordinary people can't handle it. The most seasoned firefighters are telling reporters and telling um, citizens, hey, we cannot attack this fire. We cannot keep it at bay. The best we can do, and this was happening occasionally, there were fire trucks alongside that road trying to keep the flames far enough away from cars that were inching away mm-hmm. in traffic from a paradise. And there were you know, similar tactics being deployed in Malibu when that fire was spreading so quickly that it crossed the PCH. This extreme fire behavior and the interaction with very highly populated areas that's something we haven't seen so much before. You've said it, and the governor of California, Jerry Brown, said it, and it's the unfortunate thing, and it's a thing that all Californians need to watch out for, and, you know, in other parts of the world as well. This is becoming the new normal, and we need to adjust and adjust to it and find out ways to help mitigate some of these things. Andrew Friedman, science editor for Axios, extreme weather expert, thank you for joining us again. Thanks for having me. Take care, guys. All I ever set out to do was write stories that I hoped the readers would enjoy. All of my characters had personal problems or hang-ups or handicaps of some sort. Joining me now is Tawala Sharp, co-host of the Nerdorama podcast. You can hear it on iHeartRadio. They post every Monday through Friday. We're going to be talking about comic book legend Stan Lee. He has passed away at the age of 95. A statement from his lawyer said that he passed away on Monday at Cedar sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. He had been ill for some time. Tawala, start us off by telling us how Stan Lee got started in the comic book business. Stan Lee, he kind of grew up with that creative vibe, that creative juice that flows through everyone who loves comic books. He is the quintessential nerd. You know, he was brought up in New York, went to school in the Bronx is why you have a lot of New York influences throughout the Marvel universe and a lot of his characters. By all accounts, Stan Lee pretty much was Peter Parker growing up. He got his start in comic books as an assistant, basically filling ink jars, making sure artists had paperwork. It was through his perseverance and just this creative gunning that took him from timely comics and, and writing for like astonishing comics when back in the day, everything was really weird 
Shepard and, and you had monsters and aliens. And, you know, he got his first shot doing a Captain America comic book, right. which kind of said like, OK, I'm officially here. This is before the launching of Marvel, which a lot of people say that he started Marvel. No, Marvel was already a comic book company. And when he was able to ascend to the throne as writer and editor in chief, he came in with a vision to take comic books to a whole other level beyond just the regular superhero tropes. He said, you know what? I want to tell different stories. I want to tell stories about everyday people that everyone can relate to, right. beginning with the Fantastic Four yeah. of the first group of heroes that were publicly known who had ever done something like that, who had ever said, you know who we are, you see our faces. The way he got started, he almost wanted to quit writing comics. He was bored with doing it. And that time came for him to step up and his wife convinced him, hey, this is your chance to tell superhero stories the way you want to. Yeah. And he took that to heart. And then that's when he poured himself into, it. as he said, Fantastic Four was that first thing with characters that have their flaws. He was the first one to really make that happen. Rivals with DC, they had Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman. They were always kind of these perfect people almost. He introduced the whole slew of characters that had personal problems that were not only the superheroes, but they had their personal human life. As you said, what's Spider-Man, when he hit it really big, right. was the young kid who was bullied by the football star, had trouble with girls, had dandruff and things like that, they always said. He was a geek. He was a geek. Everyone can relate to the guy who's being bullied, but at the same time, when you see that this guy is as powerful as he is, and he is just burdened by this moral code of with great power comes great responsibility. I'm going to put on this mask and I'm going to always do the right thing when really you didn't have to. That right there, those type of character stories, like I'm not good just for the sake of being good. There are times where Spider-Man thought oftentimes like, well, maybe I should be making money off of this. That's a deep, deep way to right. go at a time when no one else is doing it. He had a hand in helping with all of these movies and really just transforming popular culture. Talk a little bit about that, about the lasting impact that he's going to have on everybody that takes in any of this media. The word indelible is all you can use to describe the impact that Stan Lee had on comic book culture forevermore. The notion that each and every one of his films that are based on his characters have hit within the billion dollar mark. Right. Characters that you've never heard of before. A character like Black Panther that for many were introduced to him through the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yes, those of us who are hardcore comic book characters, we know him. But when you take an unknown character like that and it crosses a billion dollars on its own, and that's just one film within a summer of films that have hit that mark. When you look at the fact that Stan Lee's character, Spider-Man, alone is the most known superhero in the world, that alone lets you know that his mark and the impact that he made on comic book culture is forevermore. And then we also hear very late in his life, really sad stories about claims of elder abuse. Like I said, he had been sick, but he was still going to all of the comic cons and other conventions you said you even saw him and at the doctor strange premiere we noticed that he seemed very very off and we noticed an individual that was later identified as the person who had been taking advantage of him guiding him around but it seemed like he was on autopilot which lots of times he was i mean you've got a guy who at one point was sitting in a room signing a thousand autographs every hour to the point where he oftentimes didn't know what day it was because wow. he had been held up in his house signing memorabilia. Fortunately, before his passing, everything was cleared up. 
and he was in a much better space where he was just able to live his life. But it saddens those of us who were just so in love with his works and, and, and they brought us so much joy throughout our lives that someone like that could be taken advantage of. He will be missed. I'm sure people are going to be talking about him forever, really. These movies and these comic books have just impacted everybody. Tawala Sharp, co-host of the Nerdorama podcast. You can hear it on iHeartRadio. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.